Welcome, listeners, to another Transformation Church sermon podcast. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. Come on, what's up, everybody? That's just, anything can happen, you know what I'm saying? Come on, can y'all give Jesus praise this morning real quick? Give him your best. He's worthy. He's in this place, and tonight is going to be amazing. We are going to uh, worship. On Encounter Nights, if you're not familiar, we just worship God and uh, give room for the Holy Spirit to heal and set free and to speak word, word into people's life, and so it's an hour and a half and just really seeking God. Uh, we're, we're in a new series, and we're, we're jumping into a series called Fire, Fire Away, and every year, uh, if you're new to our community, we do something called Fire Away, where you send your questions in, and I just want to applaud you. You've sent so many questions in. i got to go back to Bible college, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I've gotten 55 questions, I think, and so... I can't answer all the questions. Uh, I, there are some specific questions I'm going to tackle, some hot topics and some different things, and um, uh, I'm just going to go and sit down and kind of just talk to you today from, from Scripture, from my heart. We always have to look to Scripture, and I, I just want you to know, like, I, the things I'm sharing, uh, there's many views on many sides of the aisle in these, in, these different, in these different issues, and so a lot of the issues are not necessarily um, uh, the main issues. They are peripheral issues. They are secondary issues. They are not things that we should divide over. They're things that... Uh, are important and we can talk about, um, but I want to go through those. We're going to jump in because I got a lot to share with you today. And so why don't you just, um, op- just open your heart up as I pray for us real quick. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we want your word to be our example, that we don't, we don't take our marching orders from culture, that the world is not, they don't even know who they are. Lord, they're trying to figure it out, that we, we have been given your word. And uh, Lord, we look to your word today for all of our answers, all of our direction. Your word is relevant. It's alive, it's profitable for correction and reproof and direction. It's, it's spirit-breathed. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word today. Change our life in Jesus' name. Amen? Uh, we're going to look to the word. Uh, we're going to have fun. And uh, here, we're just going to, I'm going to jump in with this first question. Someone asked, how old is the earth? How old is the earth? And, uh, and so, great question. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> And it doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, like, love your neighbor, mow their grass, you know what I'm saying, okay? Um, and so I, I, th- I think part of, part of the questions that we ask, are, and, I, and I know we want science and we believe in, in, in God creating, and I think the main thing with Genesis is this, uh, the questions we ask about Genesis and the six days of creation and those type of things, some people say the earth is 4.5 billion years old, young earth people say it's 6,000 years old, and there's so much debate. I think the questions, when, when God met with Moses on the mountain and began to give the narrative of, of the people of Israel, of where people came from, the question wasn't, how old is the earth? The question is, who are we? Who are you? Like, we ask the wrong questions sometimes from our perspective. From their perspective, the questions that Moses was trying to figure out is, how did we end up in this place? And how did, how did I even become who I am? And who are you, God? And so, I, I know this, that Genesis is narrative, it's historical narrative, it's not mythology. Um, there are some things borrowed uh, when they, when the, when they um, uh, edited, Genesis, edited the five books in, in the Babylonian um, uh, exile. There was, there was things that were taken and the stories were rewritten because, because they were on certain types of paper and papyrus and it didn't, wasn't going to last. But Moses got the first five books from God on the mountain and God began to say, this is the, the, the history of humanity. And so it's not a poem, it's not myth, it's not a song. Moses would say, hey, now I'm going to go into a song. Genesis is history. 
And, uh, and so the biggest thing I think we all need to take away from Genesis, um, when, when you look at some of the mythological writings, there are pieces of those writings that are borrowed and, and they're in Genesis, but like the flood, it's because it was a, it, it was a cataclysmic flood across the planet. So there's going to be some similarities in different writings. But when you look at some of the other writings about God and creation and all these other gods, you see like this one God killed this other God and she was the God of the sea. And literally, this is a true story. This God came over, shot her with an arrow, farted in her mouth, blew her up until she was huge and then chopped her into pieces, spread her out over. And that's how we got land. Okay, that's that's not Genesis. Okay, somebody like like we understand that's fanciful. That's mythology. That's not the. So when you look at Genesis, it's history. It's it's so and so begat so and so begat so and it's it's family history. The point of it is this, that God is God and God created, and all of this isn't from chance, and that we believe that God created this, and I don't know how many years it took him and how many, but the point is that God said, bang, and it all began, right? And and however that happened, that that, that God creating forms our our, um, thought about humanity, forms our ethics, forms our morale forms our communities and, and helps us shape our behavior and our ethics about life. Does that help at all? So I don't know how old the earth is, but God created it. And uh, he, he said, let there be light. And there was. So um, I'm going to jump into the next question. This was a big question about alcohol. I'm gonna, I've got about 30 minutes to tackle two big subjects. I'm going to tackle alcohol and I'm going to tackle women in ministry. I had a couple questions about women and where do they fit into ministry and can they preach? I had some people, we had an amazing young lady preach here uh, about a month ago and there were people, several people were uncomfortable with that. They're like, well, the Bible says this and, and um, thank you. Will you take the top off for me? Um, the Bible says this about women in ministry and, and there's scriptures that we can't avoid and so we have to talk about and look at. And so, but I don't want to just look at one specific thing. I want to look broad. First, we're going to look at alcohol. Um, is alcohol okay? Uh, different people were, uh, some questions were like, you know, some guys are struggling with alcohol and it's kind of like social and is it, is it, it's kind of an addiction socially and is that, is this sin and, and um, the spouse is kind of afraid to leave the kids alone. So we're like, okay, well, that's a little bit intense, you know what I mean? And so how do you help somebody? How do you redirect them? And this was coming from a wife's perspective in this question. But I would say this. So there are varying degrees of stupid decisions. <laughs> okay, so, so when it comes to marriage, this will help you guys. Number one, um, is, this, is this, this will end my marriage stupid, okay? If this will end my marriage stupid, then, then you need to get someone else involved. You need to honor him by not gossiping and not sharing it with everybody else. Go and get private counsel. Number two, this will bring harm to you and stress me out stupid, <laughs> Okay, so I would say in that scenario, appeal, don't demand, ask, don't assert. Is tequila the healthiest choice for breakfast, dear? You know, do you need help in this area? Are you depressed? Is moving to Idaho really a good idea for us? You know, hey, can I get counsel from our pastors, from our friends, from, 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 a, from a parent? And, and cover him in indecision if he's, if he's dealing with stuff. Number three, this annoys me, stupid. Okay, poke fun, uh, you know, let him learn his lessons. Do we really need another a fifth PS5? You know what I mean? Um, you're, you're strange. You're silly. Don't be his mom. Don't be his pastor. Don't be a psychiatrist. Be his wise friend who invites more wisdom while covering his errors. Okay? Um, so alcohol. Alcohol, drinking. Is it biblical? Is it allowed? Um, there's a lot of reasons in the Bible to drink, and there's a lot of reasons not to drink. 
There's both. And there's a lot of arguments on both sides. And so I'm going to go through the Old Testament a little bit, New Testament a little bit. And uh, we might just end up on alcohol today. We might not even get to women in ministry. I'm looking at the clock. Uh, but, but the reality is, so the, the, the general attitude in the Old Testament is fairly positive to drinking. Um, so uh, wine is a symbol of joy. In Scripture, um, Psalm, Psalm 4-7, um, Psalm 104-15, Ecclesiastes, I'm not going to put them all on the screen. I'm just giving you some references if you want to take notes. Ecclesiastes 10-19, you can always go back and watch this as well online. Uh, God understands that people liked alcohol, they enjoyed wine, and they used it co- to connect with others. Uh, wine was a symbol of God's joy. It says that we, his people, are God's vineyard, that he planted us, that we are God's vine, that, that there's, this, there's this, this revelation of Psalm 80, uh, verse 8, verse 14, Isaiah 5, just that we're the vineyard of God. Lots of practical warnings in the Old Testament about drinking, like, like a lot of stupid decisions were made from drunkenness. Practical warnings about drunkenness. Noah got hand-buckled and ended up naked. Somebody, come on. He was trashed and ended up naked, and his sons, cur- his sons got cursed because of it. So, so uh, princes and kings made decisions where they lost battles. Um, Lot slept with his daughters because he was drunk. Uh, there's still drunkenness that caused incestual relationships in this day and age. There's serious concerns. Um, uh, it, it, you know, there's things that happened. Drunkards were always portrayed uh, as, as fools in the Old Testament. Lots of warnings about drunk, drunkenness and drunk lives. Um, Warnings about uh, different, different situations, sad narratives, a, a very bad situation in a lot of ways. A lo- there's abstaining in the Old Testament for several reasons. There's abstaining. The Bible says priests should not drink while they're, while they're ministering. <laughs> Duh. Like, like I, I shouldn't be drinking while I'm preaching to you up here. Like, I've never even thought that that would be a case for me. But, but obviously, some people were doing that. You know, there was uh, Daniel abstained to make a theological point in, in Babylon. Um, you have uh, Samson's mom, don't drink while you're pregnant. Duh. You know, there was, some, there was some things. Princes and judges weren't allowed to drink while they were meeting out decisions and ruling, right? Okay, so there's these warnings. But then Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, if you obey the Lord, your vats will overflow with wine and you'll have a lot of grain. So, so like the blessing of God is a bunch of wine and grain. And, and, and there's, this, there's this twofold like warning in wisdom literature. It's like you're going to be blessed, but there's these warnings. And so Proverbs says, hey, don't pursue this stuff. Like, like he also warns about pursuing money or pursuing power or pursuing pleasure or pursuing all sex. Or there's these things just because there's warnings doesn't mean that we are prohibited from it. Does that make sense? Israel had these feasts, and it talked about strong drink and wine. So there were different types of alcohol. And it said that, you know, be careful with those. And, but listen to me. Literally, the feasts in Israel, were, they were commanded to bring their wine and to bring their alcohol and to have a big party. It was a commanded party. Some of y'all are freaking out right now. This is not licensed to go do whatever you want. And you're like, well, the party they had, the alcohol was only 20% alcohol, and it was 1%, and they had, they had to have 22 glasses. Noah got butt naked drunk, somebody. It was alcohol. Okay? He just, I mean, it was, it's the Bible. Like, it wasn't, it was, it was real alcohol. There's warnings against it. At the Passover, it was mandatory to bring the things you like, to bring the food and bring the grain and bring the wine and have a party for that whole week. They, it was a mandatory party. In Nehemiah 8.10, they were all mourning, and Nehemiah says, wait a minute, no, no, this is a feast. This is a celebration to God. What they were partying over and what they were celebrating was their remembrance of what God did. 
the remembrance and celebration of who God was. There was this, this joy of sharing and gladness and this internal joy. And in the Judges 9.13, it says, wine cheers God and man. So there's this picture of abundance of wine as a blessing. And then also be careful about how you deal with it. New Testament alcohol. Jesus himself was the most lenient on wine in the whole New Testament. Um, all through the scriptures, you can see Jesus. They called him a drunkard and a glutton. Um, it was interesting because John the Baptist's disciples weren't, wouldn't drink and they fasted. And then, they, and then John the Baptist said, Jesus is the guy. And they were like, yeah, but look, he's a, he's a drunkard and a glutton. They call him a drunkard and a glutton. Obviously, Jesus wasn't a drunkard, but the reality is uh, we know at least that Jesus didn't abstain. And so Jesus said you, at the Last Supper, he says, I'm not going to drink again until I enter to the kingdom. And so, so he, did, he denied wine on the cross, but the night before he was having the cup and drinking with his disciples. And so Jesus didn't put on airs. He didn't hide and try to play holy. He went out and hung out with people. He enjoyed people. He enjoyed life. You go to the, the wedding at Cana, and, uh, you know, Jesus performs his first miracle. You can get into the thought of the miracle, but the big deal was they had these, these water pots. They were full of water. They were meant for cleansing, ceremonially cleansing. The Jews cleansed the outside. Jesus shows up and makes all of those water pots full of wine, saying that, listen, you can try to cleanse everything externally, but I'm an internal joy. I'm an internal life. I'm full of life. So much so that Jesus made the cup of the wine the center of some of our worship, and, and so, so G, 180 gallons of wine, somebody, at, the la, at, the, at, that, at that wedding. That's like Jesus showing up at Christmas with 180 gallons of wine. Like, that just happened. What, what just, 180 gallons. Like, you say, people were, were, were enjoying the wedding and having wine and drinking. Uh, was Jesus party to misappropriation? Probably. The same way God's party to your misappropriation at Thanksgiving when you have to unbutton your pants. When you have to, to, when you overeat and you gluttonize, we make one sin bigger than some other sin, right? And, and so did Jesus, did Jesus, you know, he, he brought it and prepared it. And so we see him in, enjoying it. What does the New Testament say? Live soberly, be prepared. You don't pursue alcohol, live with preparedness, live practically, right? There's practical concerns. Paul, Paul goes harder than anybody else in 1 Corinthians and in Galatians. He says, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom. No one else went that hard at it. And so Paul was saying there's huge warnings because he's speaking to a lifestyle of drunkenness. He's speaking to the, the things that we pursue, right? And Paul's saying, so in Ephesus and in, 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 in uh, Colossians and um, Corinthians, there was these... Um, cults of practice where they would drink and party and have sex. Paul never just attacked drunkenness. He attacked uh, all the other things that were attached to it as well. And so there were these, drunk, these drunken sexual orgies, a lot like our modern-day bars, somebody. Come on, where would people go out and they drink at the bars to go figure out who they're going to have sex with? And so Paul gives these practical warnings about that. Proverbs talks about the lifestyle of gluttonous and, and, and gluttony or the, or the pursuit of power or the pursuit of money. Again, there's warnings, but it doesn't say that, that, but if we live right, money is a blessing. Authority and power is a blessing. So there's this tension, right? And so God teaches us to have moderation in all the pursuit of any of these things. And I think that it's dangerous to put mandates and things that aren't the gospel on top of people. But I think we need to live to, uh, with moderation in our life. I mean, if you think about it, um, Martin Luther, I don't know if you, anybody ever heard of Martin Luther? Anybody, everybody who's heard of Martin Luther? His wife owned a brewery. 
And, and, and so sixth century monks, I went, I've been in, to Salzburg, one of, I've been to one of the monasteries, they brewed beer to, to make a living. And, and each monk got five pints a day. They could sell them or drink them. <laughs> so these are the monks. So listen to me. It, like literally, uh, the Bible, the monk's job was to, to, to uh, archive the Bible and to transcribe the Bible. So the Bible you have today is funded by the sale of alcohol in the monasteries throughout the world. When things shifted, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it. There's huge warnings. Luther says that he drank freely just to spite the devil. But, but the point is this, that, that we see horrible misuses. We see a lot of pain. We see a lot of addiction. We see a lot of brokenness. What happened in America was when the saloon or the, or the, West, the West saloon took over. Um, in Europe, it wasn't like that. In Europe, it was a pub. It was a public, pub, public place, family place. And so you'd have family, you'd have community, you'd have celebration. The saloon in America was a place of temptation, sexual promiscuity, violent men. And so there was this horrific push, and our civilization was becoming uncivilized. And so the Methodist and the the temperance movement that came from John Wesley, the Methodist was John Wesley. It's funny, John Wesley had one of the biggest um, wine cellars in Europe. But, but, but the Methodists, these women, said, you know what? We don't want these men coming to our town. We don't want these saloons rising up. And so we're going to begin to fight against those things, rightfully so. And that's when we began to kind of ease into uh, 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 prohibition and then, and then kind of Pentecostalism picked up on holiness and, and some abstaining and, and those type of things. And I, I hope this is helping some of you. Practical concerns as a pastor, legitimate concerns. There's, there's addictions. There's abuses. There's, there's, there's pain. I've seen it in families. And so you have to know your background. You have to know your, your, your choice. I think ultimately we're called to love each other. And so, and so you know, I'm, I'm called not to make you stumble. And so in, in, in Romans 14, I'm not, if you don't drink, I'm not going to bring a bottle of wine to your house. You know what I'm saying? Um, if, if we're out together, I'm not going to push you to drink or say, hey, you should drink. This isn't some kind of teaching to say you all should drink. This is, this is just giving a biblical perspective on what it looked like. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament and New Testament, I think it's important for us to go, okay, what was happening in the church? Uh, my personal experience, I, I was crazy for a lot of years before I got saved. And so for 17 years, I didn't touch it. And then after about 17 years, I'm like, we're going to have a little wine, somebody. And so, and so again, for, for me, um, you know, I don't, I don't, I remember, Gabe's, I remember your wedding. I'll call you out. You, had, you made a good porter at your wedding. You had some good beer that you made at your wedding. The point is, the point is this, that, that we pursue we pursue first things. So if you pursue second things, if you pursue, if you pursue alcohol, if you pursue power, if you pursue money, if you pursue sex, you lose first things and second things. If you pursue first things, if you pursue Jesus, then God throws in blessing of all those other things and we, and we love each other. So I would just say, if you drink, God bless you. If you don't, God bless you. The worst sin is judging one another. And uh, if someone has a problem, get help. If someone can't handle that, the, here, here I would say it this way. All through Scripture, we drink to remember, not to forget. So if you forget in Jesus, you've gone too far. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't have any more time to handle women in ministry, but I'm going to start this. And then I'll just handle a couple of these other little questions that came in. Uh, and so let's make sure we love each other and, and we, we do what we do it in that realm. Um, what, is, what does healthy grief look like, someone asked? Uh, five stages of healthy grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. How do you grieve? I, I think the main thing on grief is this. Don't isolate yourself. 
just don't. That's why we have community here. That's why we have pastors and people. Um, how do I deal with a mentally ill spouse? Love them, pray for them, cover them, get outside help, medication, set boundaries, do what you need to do. Um, does God change his mind? Good question. Does God change his mind? I feel like there were uh, there are verses in the Bible that suggest that prayer inclined his heart to answer and to move. Um, Jonah 3.10, uh, then God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God relented. The word is actually repented. That God changed his mind from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Several verses in the Old Covenant. And then we have James, obviously. First Chronicles 21.15, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. While he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. Uh, Exodus 32, 11, we know this great prayer of Moses. Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why did your wrath burn against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he had said he would do to his people. So God, we see God changing his mind through prayer and intercession. And so we see that in James, it says the, the, the prayer of the righteous man, the the fervent prayer, the boiling over prayer. It means the, the boiling. It's not your little prayer like, oh, God. Oh, God. No, no, no. The boiling. You ever seen water boil? The, 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 the fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman, fervent prayer. My Bible school founder said every man or woman should pray one violent prayer a day. Like your neighbor should hear you. That's what James talks about. That's the prayer that changes things. The fer- now, there's a whisper, and I'm not saying, again, don't hear me, I'm not putting some formula on it, but James says, the fervent bubbling over prayer of a righteous man or woman availeth much, so changes things. I think prayer changes things. So I see, we, we can see in the scriptures God changing some things. Um, the doctrine of healing, someone asked, I know I'm just popcorning these things, but um, the doctrine of healing, someone asked, why do charismatics pray, uh, be healed in the name of Jesus? If I don't get healed, does it mean I didn't pray hard enough? <laughs> The fervent. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you didn't pray hard enough. I, I, on the heels of saying prayer changes things and pray hard, if you don't get healed, it does not mean you didn't pray hard enough. Here, here's what we need to look at. Was healing, is healing God's will? So Old Testament, God was healing. He healed Naaman. He healed a widow's son. He, healed, he opened the womb. The entire ceremony to prove that someone was healed of leprosies in the Old Testament. Miriam was healed. The waters of Marah were healed. They were bitter with the cross. Isaiah, uh, they were bitter, and then they put a tree in it, and the water was healed. Isaiah 53, 5 says this, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So this is where the doctrine of healing comes from, the cross of Jesus, his stripes. Psalms 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Listen to this, who forgives all your iniquities. Come on, all your sins are forgiven. We believe that, right? We have a trouble with this next thought. Who heals all your diseases? And and so, yes, we see disease. Yes, we see pain. Yes, we see something lower than the standard of God's word. We see a broken world. But that doesn't mean we lower our expectation of of God's nature and his divinity that wants to heal. Does that make sense? You're like, well, why? If he's all powerful, does he not heal everything? I don't know. We'll know when we get to heaven. I think because if we had all the answers, we would need faith. And, and so New Testament is their healing. We see it all through the New Testament. Jesus went about healing. Matthew 4, 23 and 24, <clears throat> he healed all types of diseases and people that were brought to him. They, he healed them. Uh, Mark 6, he had trouble healing some because there was unbelief. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 24, he who bore his, 
our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sin might live for righteousness by, the, by whose stripes we are healed. So again, here, here's kind of where the doctrine of healing comes from. Peter's saying we, are, we were healed by the stripes of Jesus, by the cross. And then James says, call for the elders of the church if anyone's sick. And the prayer of faith, anoint them with oil and the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Let me just say this. A lot of people have blamed the person who's sick of not having any faith. James says the elders better have faith. It's not, if, if I, when I'm sick, I ain't got no faith. I'm like, God, take me to heaven. <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> Baby, I need some soup. God, kill me. I want to go to heaven now. I'm not a good patient, right? But so, so faith a lot of times is low when we're sick. But it says the, the, that's why we have community and elders and leaders and pastors. Call for them if you're sick and, and the, anoint you with oil and the prayer of faith will raise you up. So there's this prayer from the, the, of the faith a lot of times needs to be in the leadership, not just in the person that's sick. And, and so I'll, I'll say this. Jesus never healed any, anybody. Ne, Jesus never did a miracle the same way twice. And, and he, did, he did that so we didn't make faith a formula. Because we'd all make it a formula. And that's what some of the, the deterrent from the healing doctrine or the, or, 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 or the blessing gospel or those things. There's a deterrent because they put, this, they put this faith formula together. And if you just do this, then you'll get all this. The reality is if, if my wife and I do the same thing on every date, we have the same conversation, it's the same as exact thing every time, our relationship is stale and going to go dead. The same thing with Jesus and God or you and I. We have to be in a relationship with God. God is still speaking. God wants to talk to us about healing and about when he wants to do the miracle and why he wants to do it and, and, and get our obedience and our participation, his sovereignty, his power, our participation. And I think that's a walking, living, breathing relationship. And there's going to always be a tension between faith and doubt and our relationship with God. So I would just encourage you, why do we pray uh, for healing? It's, it's very biblical. Um, I think uh, some of the other verses, and they said, why do we ask in Jesus' name? I, I would say this to you. I mean, I pray uh, to the Father in Jesus' name. I get that from John 14, uh, verse 12 through 14. It says this, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, Jesus is saying, ask in my name. John 16, 23 and 24, why don't we pray healing in the name of Jesus or be healed in Jesus' name? And in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you until now. You've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. And so um, we see that healing is God's will. And I don't know why everybody doesn't get healed. I don't know why we're facing a pandemic globally and and I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I know that Hebrews talks about individuals that died believing. And it says they died in faith. I have a good friend uh, whose pastor or whose father was the pastor of the church. He had cancer. And his, he did, his last 21 sermons were on why God is a healer. And then he passed and went to heaven. But, but he never wavered that God was a healer. And so he died in faith. Hebrews, where it talks about that, it says some were sawn in half. Some died, some died, but it says they all died. My, life, my wife loves that scripture. It says they died believing. And so I think we fight to the end, and it's a fight of faith, and then we, we get our, our reward in heaven. Um, I'm going to jump to the very beginning of this thought of, of women in, in ministry. I don't have enough time to hit it. I have about seven minutes left. Um, we were in prayer today, and we're going to take a minute at the end today 
we got um, a, a few minutes, and then every week we do a response time at the end. And so we have communion on, on those two side walls, and we have communion. It's not real wine today, don't worry. Some of y'all are like, dang. Um, we have communion on both the side walls, here, one here and one in the back. We, we were here praying before service and just asking God what he wanted to do in this last time of ministry because I was expecting to be able to get into a lot more of um, women in ministry and families and roles. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle that next week. I've got, I've got um, some answers on predestination, homosexuality, um, is the Bible uh, authentic? Those, I was going to try to tackle all three of those next week. I mean, this series is going to be about a month long, I think. I think we're, it's going to be a long time. I think we need answers, you know. I think we need to look at the Bible. And so um, what does the Bible, the question that came in says, what does the Bible say about women teaching and preaching? They go, they, the question came, and then how do we as a church obey 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12 that says, uh, I do not permit women to teach or have authority over a man. I permit women to learn in submission. The word submission is peaceably. Um, and so, so what I want to do, and this is a big debate between two big groups of people that's called complementarianism and egalitarianism. So, so complementarianists and egalitarianists. So these two debates, one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit real quick four views. And I really believe as I share this uh, um, next week, there's going to be healing in marriages. We prayed today, and that's what the Holy Spirit said during our prayer time. And so maybe today is just, a, just a, uh, getting us ready for next week. But maybe you take communion with your spouse today or your family. I, I, God spoke to us this morning and that there, there was going to be healing from abuses, healing for, in marriages, and, and, and the king's peace would reign. And so what we see in society right now is no peace because everyone's fighting and trying to go against God's design. And so when we look at scripture, I just need to say to you, I don't understand all of it. There's mysteries, but scripture is our roadmap. Culture does not tell us how to behave. Culture does not imprint on us what societal norms are. We get our direction from the scriptures. Paul calls the scriptures prophetic. Peter calls the scriptures prophetic. We're called to live prophetic lives. What does that mean? Just obeying the scriptures. It's a prophetic life. The prophecies of scripture in Peter. We're called to live prophetic lives. And so, so when it comes to women in ministry, I, I, I land on more of the complementarian side. Um, and I'll get into what that means. Um, let me first say this. God, we have to look at God and the Trinity. We're going to look at that next week. And I'll give you a quick thought about what the two sides are. Egalitarian view. Let me, read, let me do this. Here, here's four views of, of culture and women and, 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 and women in the home and women in the church. You can't, you can't undo those. They're connected all through Paul's teaching. Women in the home, women in the church. So here's four views. Here's the first number one, the traditional view. Uh, that, that's not a biblical view, traditional view. Um, that mom stays home, cooks the meatloaf. Dad comes home, gets the biggest piece of meatloaf. That, that women don't do things men do. Men don't do things women do. Men do this, women do this. And uh, they, don't, they don't mix. And women just, they're there in the home. And all of us know uh, they don't wear dresses. And, you know, or they do wear dresses. And they, and they well, that's another sermon. <laughs> that's the traditional view, actually. <laughs> that's not another sermon. That's like, you know, barefoot pregnant at home cooking meatloaf. Yeah, man, head a table. Traditional view. Nonsense. And all the ladies said. Okay, nonsense. Number two, the progressive view. 
um, that, you know, just society and progressive view, uh, feminism is just is rampant. Uh, you know, just women can do anything and everything. There's no, there's no roles. There's no gender. Uh, gender theory is changing. Come on, can I tell you that you can't get two feminists to agree? That if you ask them what the patriarchy is, they can't explain. It'll be, you'll have 50 different answers. That, that in progressive modernism, that the, the goalpost is changing and us as a society are trying to be kind and have manners and adopt all the junk. And the reality is, listen to me, the reality is in 10 years, it's going to be different. And the world is confused. They're confused. And we have the Bible to show us. And so I think that progressivism is as much bull as traditionalism. Okay? And then you have biblical egalitarianism. What that means is this, that, that people change the Trinity, so they change the Trinity, that the Trinity has no, the Trinity is all God, obviously, and all equal, and the Trinity has no different roles. That no one's in charge in the Trinity, and no one, no one is greater than anyone in the Trinity, that, that even though they're equal and they're God, no one is greater, no one's in charge. And, and so what they've done, they call it the social Trinity. They flatten out the Trinity, they flatten out the Godhead, so there's no one in charge. And then in turn, in turn, now once the Godhead's flattened out, they do that amongst genders and roles in the church, and no one's in charge, and there's no distinction. And so if you look at Jesus, you, John, all the book of John, Jesus says, I've only come. Listen to me, ladies, don't get mad, because scripturally Jesus lived this way he said I only come to do the father's will the Holy Spirit says the Bible says he doesn't even speak on his own authority like so when you look all through the scriptures the trinity has this co-equal they're God they're, they're, but the father always has priority Jesus said I, I, the father and I are one but I've come my work is to do the will of the father and so we see the Father has prerogative, the Father has priority, and the Father is speaking to some things. And so that is, that is, that is complementarianism. So egalitarianism is it's all equal. There's no roles that men do are, are, are just the, you know, they're what they're going to be, no specific masculinity. Women are going to do what they want to do, no specific femininity. Everybody is just equal in their roles. And so, and so I don't, there's people that believe that. I lean more towards a biblical complementarianism, which, but, but not the hardcore staunch. I'm not, I'm not this guy. And I'll explain that next week. And some of you want to come, bring all your friends, bring people that want to know about this stuff. But biblical complementarianism is that this. Men and women are equal redemptively. That in, in salvation and in value, and in intrinsic worth, we're totally equal, but we have different roles and different designs. And, and society is trying to remove that. And, and as God's people, it's just not real. It's not Bible. And so we're going to look at that next week and we're going to pray. I don't know, is this, as this clock runs out, does that mean I'm out of time or we're all out of time? Uh, you can do whatever you want. Thank you. Here's what I'd like to do. <laughs> this is important subjects, guys. The world is fighting for definitions, and we as God's people can't just sit by and, not, and ignore the word and not know what God's heart is. And let me, let me end with this. Would you stand to your feet? It's 11.03. We, we, we have till 11.06 in here. 11.05. 11, 
We have till 11.15. I don't even know. I don't even know the time. So we're going to go back into one song. And, and maybe you heard something about healing today. Maybe you heard something about alcohol today. You're dealing with struggling. Maybe you heard something. Our, our ministry team is going to come down here. Communion's open. Maybe you're dealing and struggling with roles, masculinity, femininity. We're going to deal with that more next week. I'd like you to prepare your heart this week for the rest of really me teaching and digging into those roles next week. Because I'm going to hit on marriage. I'm going to hit on husbands and wives. I'm going to hit on Ephesians. I'm going to hit on the doctrine of the Trinity. Let me, let me say this last thing to you. Baby, would you come here with me? For me, for me, just hold on one second. For me to have a relationship with her, and I'm working on this relationship, <laughs> um, but for me to have a relationship with her, the only way possible for me to have a relationship with her is for her to self-define. And so, and so some of the struggles in our life is when I've tried to define who she is, when I've tried to superimpose who I am on her, when I've tried to, you know, manipulate or dictate. Come on, we're all human. Come on, somebody. You know, whenever we try to do that in relationships, if you have a friend, you have a spouse, if, if I try to define who she is, it's not a relationship, it's manipulation. And so the only way... For us to understand and have a relationship with God is to know his love letter called the word, which is him self-defining to us. It's him projecting onto us who he is, not us projecting onto God who we want him to be. And so in my relationship with my wife, I don't want to project onto her who I want her to be. I, I want her to self-defined to me who she is and I want to learn that and get to know that and cherish that better so as we worship God today I would just ask you in the Trinity in the Father Son and Holy Spirit in the in the economy of the Trinity they're not just they're they're God but there's there's diversity of roles there's there's submission there's there's equality but unique design and I want us to chew on that and allow that as we go into next week. I want us to allow the Trinity's picture of who he is to define who we are as a family and who we are as God's people and who we are as husbands and wives. Is that okay? All right, let's worship just for a second. And communion's open, and I'll come back out and pray us out here in a second. Thank you for listening to another Transformation Church sermon podcast. If you would like someone to pray with you, or if you would like some ministry materials, please email us at hello at transformationchurch.us.